I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate the style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what it means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode 12 of season 1 on Debate and Delight. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Whippenstock Publishers, who published my 2015 book, Folk Phenomenology, Education, Study, and the Human Person. Give us this day, daily prayer for today's Catholic, Solidarity Hall, Eden plus Utopia, Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedalboard Solutions, Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for Black Catholics, Where Peter Is, there is the church, the Juan Diego Network, Catholic Audio for Latinos, and Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. The featured sponsor for today's episode is the Institute for Christian Socialism, building a movement of the ecumenical Christian left. I'm so happy to have the Institute for Christian Socialism support or another one of these emerging media outlets that while being new in one sense, are also deeply historically aware of their mission and vision and also the place they occupy within a long history uh, for them, the long history of the work of the left and Christianity, the unity we can find throughout history between the Christian gospel message and the message of leftist politics, particularly through socialism, democratic socialism, and social democracy. I would point you to their website, which you'll find in the show notes as usual, which is christiansocialism.com, but I also want to send you more specifically to their publication called The Bias Magazine, The Voice of the Christian Left. The Bias Magazine uh, features some writing by a number of people, including me. I'll include my article there in the show notes. And I just love their title. It's, again, a wonderful example of this historically aware uh, young organization. Uh, The title of our magazine, they write, The Bias, pays tribute to the efforts of a small group of British Catholics in the 1960s and 70s who attempted to forge a new movement of politically radical Christians in dialogue with the emergent new left in Marxist thought. While the group eventually chose Slant as their journal's title, Bias was first proposed. So we can see even in their publication's uh, selected title, this uh, wonderful tension between something new, an initiative for today, and also a strong sense of tradition in the past. So please, as usual, uh, take a look at the show notes, find their links, also find links to their magazine, and of course, find the links to all of our wonderful sponsors here at Folk Phenomenology. If you would like to support Folk Phenomenology, please share this episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and maybe leave us a review, a rating, or even drop a tip, or encourage someone else to do any of those things if you've already done that. You can also find Folk Phenomenology on dedicated social media accounts across Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's episode is the second of four monologues on this season of Folk Phenomenology, 
In the first monologue, episode one, I talked about the interview itself before we jumped into the interviews of the show. In today's episode, I launch into a meditation on debate, particularly its relationship to the sense of delight that Dilexit Mundum, the show's motto, speaks to. I'll be introducing two debates instead of three because we have exchanged one of the debates at the request of my interlocutor with the unreleased um, interview I had with Gloria Purvis. Uh, Not a bad exchange. But I do hope that you're able to hear in these self-disclosures and in these meditations on debate and delight uh, something that's true for you and maybe true for all of us. Something that, again, reemphasizes the truth of Dilexi Mundum. Probably the most formative influence on my life has been debate. And um, I could probably make this episode this very long, nostalgic monologue about my experience as a high school debater, as a speaker, um, the relationships even between my religious upbringing, my musical religious upbringing, and um, my uh, my experience in, in, in formal debate, and then also in apologetics, and you know, and to, through college and studying philosophy, all the way to the present. But there's something actually more than just the fact that debate entered my life in a very formative way and and, in an influential way. But it was that debate also, I think, represented something very different for me in my life than what music and, and religion represented and were. You know, um, I was raised in a full-time lay missionary Catholic family. And what that means for the purposes of what I'm trying to say here is that, like, you know, I I was in really a no-exit situation. I was, I was born into um, my religion. It was, it was not only like a, I suppose, a kind of, the kind of identity that most religious people would have, but I feel like our our family in particular, because of the specific um, choice that my parents made to be in full-time ministry uh, and raise a family in that environment, it meant that there was more than just a kind of basic sense of Catholic membership and sacramental initiation and stuff. There was something above and beyond that. And my mu- my my learning how to play guitar when I was five and all the music I played and all of the, yeah, first I would say f- close to 15 years of my, of my life, uh, as a musician, as a guitarist, as a singer, as a music minister, it was completely and totally, you know, um, within that religious 
purpose and, and set of circumstances. And, um, you know, this isn't to say that those, that those two things aren't important. My goodness. Um, <laughs> uh, they are my earliest and in some sense, they're, they're the only points of, I would say, kind of real kind of stability that I can turn to biographically. But debate truly represented something new and something different. And I would even say a kind of departure and perhaps the first meaningful kind of exit in my life. Um, this happened in a number of different ways, but maybe the most pronounced one was you know, I, I was I was a good debater from kind of the the moment I was handed a a Lincoln Douglas debate manual with some sample cases inside of it, and uh, and sent into a classroom to you know to debate. I I am I, um, yeah. I was I was I was good at debate. Um, and in all my speech competitions in general, I, I, I did well. Um, I played sports. I played football and ran track a little bit and played a little bit of basketball in the early years of junior high. And, you know, as an athlete, I was a, as a football player, I, I was, I was a reliable starter. You know, I, I was someone who, um, who, who was, yeah, was, was reliable, worked hard, um, you know, and I was uh, able to, through, I think, mostly just hard work, you know, um, add value to my team. Um, but I was very aware of the fact that both my size, my ath athleticism, limits of my athleticism and what have you, that, you know, um, I couldn't put a team on my shoulders, for instance, um, you know, uh, at most, maybe <laughs> I could, I could, uh, take advantage of a situation that I could kind of pre-stamp, recognize and, and maybe make a big play. And I did a few of those things, but you know, it had, it was not something that I could will myself through in debate and speech. And, and but mostly just you know Lincoln Douglas debate, I I could do that and you know even my senior year um, in high school I you know I was I was there to, to to add points to the tally for you know the forensics or speech team and even for this kind of Lone Star Cup competition that our school ended up winning that one for my senior year. Uh, which is this cumulative points system. All that to say that, like, this story uh, happens in between my sophomore and junior year of the summer, and my kind of as a rising junior. And um, I got some support from the University Interscholastic League, from the state of Texas, the public school system, and from the Guadalupana Society for my church. <laughs> and that's such a good part because, you know, as much as I'm going to say that debate is in some sense this exit or this kind of opening, this move to another place, 
there's always going to be, you know, the Guadalupanas or some particularly marked religious presence. And, and you know what, that's, that's a sign of continuity I think is really important to, uh, to not ignore either. But I got the scholarship to attend the Baylor University summer debate camp. And, uh, I think it was the only one in, or maybe the best one in Texas. I don't really know what the other ones were, what have you, but you know, it was a big camp. They had novice and intermediate and expert. I enrolled in the expert, not because I felt like I was that, but mostly because I was pretty sure I wouldn't get to go to another one because this was expensive and I got some funding for this, but you know, I, I, I didn't want to assume I'd get another shot at this. And plus I, I felt like like I was pretty good, and I, but I knew I needed to get better. I knew I needed to, uh, to find better resources. And at this debate camp, it was really one of those moments where I was being dropped off on a college campus all by myself for, I think, two weeks or so. And I was attending a non-religious function. It was an academic camp. And so uh, my uh, my roommate was Jewish, so that was my very first uh, interreligious uh, experience, really. Um, you know, Baylor's not a Catholic university, um, but uh, you know, um, it was a it was a uh, it was a new experience in in so many ways, in so so many ways, and. I was exposed, among other things, to um, to philosophy, and not to the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, nor to a Catholic idea of philosophy, but really to political philosophy, which was essentially sort of different degrees of liberalism and its critics, uh, Rawls and Nozick, uh, Mill, although interestingly, when it came to Mill, <laughs> Kant, for instance, we really, they were more treated through their axiology, through their ethics, and less through their, through their politics. But I didn't know those differences at the time, so, you know, those only kind of make sense now, retrospectively. What I'm trying to say is that, that moment, that week, going to Baylor, for the, really for the first time in my life, attending a non-religious thing. Um, you know, I went to mass on the weekend, just like my, my roommate went to synagogue and, but you know, otherwise, you know, I wasn't, uh, yeah, that, that was totally different for me. Um, sure. I was going to public school, certainly, you know, in sports and stuff, you travel and things like that. And I suppose those were miniature things, but even when it came to that debate was the, main reason that I was traveling oftentimes you know tournaments would last two days or so and so you'd have to drive back and forth or in some cases stay in a hotel so um yeah all that to say is that as I began aside from music and religion debate stands out as the most formative uh the next most formative uh influence on my life but it also is different than those other two because debate for the first time opened me to 
I would say, a secular experience. And here, on this note of the secular and of a sense of, of what it means to, to be secular, this is actually what I want to focus on uh, and what I want to really explore under the name of debate. And the reason for that, or the justification, is because um, I believe, at least biographically, that the most important thing about debate in my life was not necessarily or not primarily or not solely the skills it gave me, although it, it did certainly give me um, some skills uh, of, of, of many kinds. And, uh, and it wasn't necessarily the, um, I suppose, the direct experiences of, you know, winning or building my confidence up or the people I met or, or things like that. I think in the end what it did is it is it taught me and showed me and forced me into a different relationship to the world. And what I mean by this is that my religious upbringing was one in which the world was something that well something that you had to be against. The world was something that could only be loved in the sense of redemption, where, you know, you love the world, which means that you that you want to redeem it, but you don't love it sort of as it is or for its own sake, or there's nothing worldly that hasn't been redeemed yet that's worth, yeah caring about and there was even a kind of despise a, a kind of despising of the world a kind of hatred of the world I would say um, in my particular religious upbringing I think this had to do with a lot of factors my my parents both I think had worldly experiences that they uh, that were that were very negative and so there was no kind of love loss there uh, when they entered religion. You know, my dad was a was a heroin addict uh, for about ten years. You know, from the late sixties to the to the late seventies. Um, my mom's experience, you know, kind of an existential crisis was not. Uh, it doesn't seem, at least, to have been. You know. Um, a particularly positive one and so in many ways the 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 choice to live a life of, uh, in, in ministry in the church as a family all there it was a choice to part ways with with that world i suppose of, of their of, of their own you know upbringings and, and and lives before their conversions and whatnot and so that was where i where my life happened and until debate I think that my my sense of my relationship to the world was one that 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 I accepted in fact as um, as negative by by almost moral necessity as kind of piously negative and 
debate, whether it was debate camp or debate tournaments or the exposure to philosophy as a tool for debate, but also with its own particular ideas that came from sources and places and histories and times and things that were in many cases not Catholic and therefore on that criteria part of the world. Um, debate forced me to see that and to and and to begin to see it as not necessarily out of hand um, what I thought the world would be. So debate taught me to love the world. I think that music and religion taught me to to love God to to love my my brothers and sisters and my family uh, and, and and even in the world but always on those kind of somewhat uh, deprecating terms I suppose um, even within my own extended family I could see those dynamics um, certainly taught me to love well, music, art, something there that, that I think in, in many ways, in fact, as I developed as a guitar player and as a musician, I began to, to see the limits of this kind of anti-worldly approach to music as, as being very limiting in terms of just not capable of accounting for how much stuff you can really do with instruments and music. You know, I... I was I was handed the, the the album I think it's the the eponymous album of Salvador, that kind of praise and worship fusion Latin band, and that just blew me away. You know, it just blew blew just blew my socks right off, just right off. Um, even some of the other music like Tony Melendez, like his Ways of the World album, Tom Booth. Um, you know, there was something about them that had a credibility. I think Tom Booth's music has a lot of gospel influence. And, you know, I'm sure we can get into a big argument or debate of sort of how worldly is that really. But within my own experience, you know, um, music was instrumental for worship or for liturgy, but it didn't really have a place for its own sake that much. Now, we listen to Willie Nelson in the car. We listen to Gloria Ronstadt's Canciones de Mi Padre a lot. We listen to oldies. Uh, we listen to Ramon Ayala. Uh, we listen to some nursery rhyme type songs, you know, which which I liked. But, you know, but if you're not on a, on a car ride or something like that, you know, there wasn't a ton of, there wasn't any secular music, really. And to the extent that it did exist, it was kind of, you know, a pesero driving by playing Selena or something like that. It still got in your psyche and it still affected you. And, but it, it wasn't, it didn't have value in intrinsic value or whatever. And all I'm saying is that for me with music, you know, you might think it taught me love of the world, but it really, it really didn't on its own. It took me a long time. 
to find my way into a kind of worldly uh, love of music. And in many ways, I actually think it made me a really slow student of the guitar um, because being really good at it wasn't something that was like necessarily that important. In fact, there was there were the really good guitar players I knew mostly were in the valley. There was this guy named George who was just such a great guitar player, and he taught me a few licks, you know. And but he was one of the only people, a few others, you know, who approached the instrument in that way. Most of the people playing instruments were pretty utilitarian in their approach. Oddly enough, my dad wasn't, but he was pretty limited in, in what he could uh, play. Um, all this is by way of me trying to explain that I want to talk about debate as amor mundi or love of the world um, precisely for the reason that in my life debate has forced me into this different kind of relationship to the world and this is important for this podcast because the motto of the podcast that I that I've chosen is Dilexi Mundum, which is a unadapted and somewhat idiosyncratically declined condensed version of the Vulgate's um, rendition of John three sixteen. Um, that says, Seek Deus Dilexit Mundum, uh, for God so loved the world. And that, that passage in English, for God so loved the world, has, um, didn't have the same meaning to me before debate. Before debate did its work on me, before debate affected me and forced me into this kind of relationship with the world. And that's taken a long, long time. I mean, I think it's still something that I'm learning, that's something that I'm thinking about, something that I that I want but don't understand. But the main thing that I take from that rendition of John 3.16 is that, goodness gracious, you know, for, for God so loved the world... <laughs> that the motivation, the the reason for for Christ within salvation history, right there in John, and maybe the most famous, you know, chapter and verse in the in the world, certainly within the evangelical world, John 3.16, you know, um, God loves the world. And what I love about it in Latin is that the word for love is dilexit. So it doesn't take the the more amorous Latin expression of love. It takes the delectable expression of love. Dilexit is the kind of love that is a form of delight or pleasure. So the Vulgate's Latin rendition of John's Greek in this vulgar Vulgate uh, expression of scripture that the Roman Catholic Church 
uh, that I think is, is just kind of, you know, <laughs> it is, it is the Latin, Latin scripture. It says Latin or Latin rite or Roman or whatever you want to call this institution. Um, you know, th there's something about that, you know, putting aside questions of biblical scholarship and accuracy and translation and stuff. The antiquity of the choice of that particular Latin word, delexit, that God didn't just love the world in some kind of amorous way, but that God took delight, that God took pleasure that God found the world to be something that could be delighted in and, ple and pleasure could be taken from, from itself. It's not the, the, the sort of redemptive account of love where, well, you know, you're broken, but I'll fix you. And then, and that's my love for you is, 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 is no, I mean, obviously there's redemption, obviously the world needs salvation and, and and obviously that's a part of this whole story but you know this idea from John 316 to, to John's prologue which alludes all the way back to the very beginning of, of, of the Hebrew Torah of Genesis uh, we find a an image of of of, of God who is love and who loves in this mode of delexit or to take delight or pleasure in something. God finds the world delectable or, uh, yeah, I don't even know if that's actually a word, but that's, that's why I chose this motto. Delexit mundum, when we take out the sic deus, we almost secularize it even more um, into just delexit mundum, then it becomes a kind of different expression than amor mundi, which is love of the world. But delexit mundum becomes delight in the world. And I think there's a subtle difference, perhaps, between the kind of love of the world, amor mundi, ordo amoris, this kind of sense of, of order coming from love, and then this sense of, of delight. And, you know, that was that's what debate did for me that I think is more consequential than the tools I got or the skills I developed or the even my career as a, as a philosopher, <laughs> as a teacher, um, those are important things, but they're merely anecdotal. They're merely biographical. I don't trust them as things to share that offer anything to you, the listener, that might be worthwhile and might even exhort you in a way. Um, but this sense of delight in the world, delexit mundum, to take pleasure in the world, it's something that I think debate threw me into, 
and that really key people along the way um, helped to uh, to keep me there. Um, the figure who probably was the most instrumental at the right time, which is essentially the time immediately after my my career as a competitive debater in high school was over, who who didn't let me fall out of that mode of of uh, of loving the world, of taking pleasure in the world, and who called me out on it was one of my teachers at Franciscan University of Steubenville, Father Conrad Harkins. He was a, an OFM, Order of Franciscans Minor. He's a medieval historian. He was he was a scholar, just a first-rate scholar. He had all his languages together. He was um he was just um one of those teachers who was a was a priest and who kind of taught like it. <laughs> now I, I've had teachers who were not priests who taught like priests too, and I think there's a priestly element to, in particular, the professoriate. Um, but Father Conrad, um, his classes had a distinctly homiletic edge to them and that included admonitions and um kind of call outs of sorts and i'll never forget when he i think he said this to the whole group he was our honors um tutor i think he told the whole group that we were basically just hopelessly provincial and that we had probably come to franciscan because of that and that our families probably selected this place for us because of that. And that all of our motivations rooted in that kind of provincialism was bad for our minds and our intellects and, and, and bad for our souls. And he admonished us and said that kind of our, our penance of sorts... <clears throat> was that we had to um, uh, we had to read all the books that were at the top of the New York Times um, bestsellers except for diet books and self-help books. So what was funny about that is this was a time when Dan Brown's novels were consistently there. And I remember being like, well, this is crazy. How are you telling me to read this anti-Catholic stuff by Dan Brown? And he just laughed and said, look, you got to, you know, that doesn't change anything. And so I remember reading them and kind of being like, wow, I guess these are pretty offensive to me as a Catholic, but they're much more offensive to me as, I mean, from a standpoint of literature, like this Dan Brown guy, you know, he's a horrible writer. And that was interesting to me that I could find something more offensive about Dan Brown that wasn't him openly writing conspiratorial fiction about my religion. And, you know, beyond that one day's admonition, Father Conrad's place in my life was consistently a place in which he... Um, 
really pushed me to, to, to love the world and to take delight in the world. And, and, and for him, this was a deep part of what it meant to be a Franciscan and a deep part of his love of Bonaventure uh, and really his, his very partisan love of Bonaventure over and above Thomas Aquinas. And, you know, he, he instilled that in me in a very kind of, you know, freshman year, sophomore year of college. And, and, uh, and in part because of that, also in part because I was gone, I was far from home and I was free to do what I wanted and I could, you know, party and, and see the world uh, in probably a more dramatic way. I, was, I, le- I learned how to take my guitar out of the church and, and go to the pub and, and, you know, make some money and, uh, and drink for free and, you know, and all that. And I was learning how to play secular music. Um, so on and so forth. I don't think a lot of people, I think Father Conrad was right. Most people, I think, went to Franciscan University to get away from the world. But given the way I was raised, and I think also I was in a place where I was finally ready to, to, to do that. And I had the ability to do it. I had some of the resources to do it because of my scholarship uh, that I had go- when I was going there. And... Um, yeah, so there. <laughs> Father Conrad and paradoxically perhaps Franciscan University uh, taught me to love the world. Another set of people at Franciscan University who taught me this were um, my teachers in both the philosophy department and in the Spanish department, in particular Spanish literature. You know, um, I love Dante, and Dante uses the vulgar vernacular tongue for his verses, not unlike, you know, the Vulgate and Jerome. Um, and then you have the Poetas Italianisantes, the Italianized poets of Spain, kind of copying that style using Spanish. Uh, of whom surely the greatest is, is Cervantes, Miguel de Cervantes, and Enes Quixote. And there we have this tale of, uh, of episodic, absurd adventures. That's not an epic. It's really the birth of the modern novel of sorts um, before modernity one might say and um, and there was this great love of of that book and of that tradition and of that literature that I was exposed to that on the other hand was very close to Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and, and others and you know That was, for me, again, just, you know, really convicting. And it showed me a kind of delight that you could take in the world, uh, even through slapstick comedy. You know, the uh, 
And then in philosophy, my exposure to personalism, and which I think was probably more present than phenomenology, but this idea that the person and that the human person in particular occupies a a a kind of crucial, if not singular, place uh, for philosophical thought, but also for our understanding of even more lofty, perhaps, metaphysical questions, or for that matter, theological questions. So again, uh, a love of, of, of the world, whether it's Francis and Bonaventure and love of animals and of nature and of creation and or, or it's love of, of vulgar, secular, episodic, petty. I mean, they're thinking more of Dante. No one's as petty as Dante with his, you know, petty, political, vindictive, uh, you know, um, literature. The primacy of, of the person and the human person in particular the place of subjectivity all of that together kind of took me from my experience of debate which first drew me into some of these things but it kind of sharpened them and in some ways it also brought them back into a certain kind of religious context again just like the Guadalupanas before Father Conrad Harkins the Franciscan tradition the Catholicity of all these sources I've talked about. Yeah, I get it. It's hardly a secularism uh, that is probably going to do the job for someone who understands the secular or secula or seculum in a kind of modern contemporary sense that is the converse or the opposite of religion. But here's, to me, the real revelation of sorts. Secular is a thoroughly religious term and expression. And the concept of the secular is a concept and a name that has a real meaning and a real place inside and outside of religion. In other words, it's not this dualistic Manichaean, the the world and then the you know the heavens and the earth kind of a situation. It's not about debate drawing me out of my religion, out of my religious setting of music and allowing me to maybe take it into more overtly secular. No, it's in some sense a a better or perhaps more sophisticated and articulated representation of 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 the truth of of that religion and that music and and that art and that relation those relationships uh and and so for me this sense of love of the world which is not just a generic or just a kind of uh, patronizing, you know, I love you, therefore I'm going to fix you. But this delexit mundum, this ability to love and take delight, take pleasure even 
in the world to even take pleasure in pleasure that secularism in a very perhaps uh, odd way ended up for me becoming not only this exit or this valve that kind of blew off some excess out of the tight and somewhat constrained religious environment that I was raised in, but it actually allowed me to re-examine, re-encounter, certainly critic, uh, doing those things critically, um, some of those things of the world that had been written off in the past. And I have to say, I'm probably still doing that to this day. But that is, for me, the significance of debate, especially whenever it's contrasted in that kind of developmental autobiographical sense as kind of the, the third and kind of latest arriving influence on my life. Now, in this podcast season, we are about to move from the interview stage, which will, by the way, continue. There's still some more interviews to come, but we're going to move into um, a series of three debates, a debate with David Gray on critical race theory, a debate with Dean Dentloff on communism, and a debate with Trent Horn on capitalism. Now, to me, what matters most about those debates is less about how they map onto that competitive experience that I once had and to some extent that sort of philosophical argumentative form of dialogue and engagement, which I still do believe in and certainly will not probably ever let go of entirely. But I've been challenged, including by some of the the, the people I debated, um, you know, uh, both Dean and Trent, for instance, you know, were very kind of clear that they didn't want to have a resolution, affirmative, negative, formal, moderated, time sequence debate. They just wanted to have a kind of a, a, a critical conversation, which um, in Trent's case, I sent some questions ahead of time. In Dean's case, I said, look, we know we, we don't, we've been in contact for a long time, understanding we, we're on two subtle but very different sides of, of this particular term, <laughs> communism. So let's talk about that. And, uh, and with David Gray, you know, I don't know David very well at all, but, you know, he had made some very, I thought, and I still think, you know, um, bombastic statements about critical race theory. And um, I wanted to see if he could or would um, stand by them. And you'll see, you know, how that goes. The point, though, is that... Um, while the motivations were different and, and the feedback I got from the debaters definitely had something to do with it. I had other critics, um, the, uh, the good, you know, the good priests of clerically speaking were pretty critical of my, uh, 
debate against Trent. Well, at least one of them was. One said I won. The other one basically said, Father Anthony said that uh, the whole debate shtick for him was just kind of uh, self-defeating. And I have to say that as much as it was cool to hear like, oh, look, someone I don't know uh, at the time didn't know at all. Someone I don't know thinks I won the debate. I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, But to be honest, the comment I took away and really chewed on was the it was self-defeating it was pointless we didn't it you know it didn't get into the kind of it didn't get into any of the real issues or motivations or anything like that and that criticism i think has has rung in my head for a long time and i think i think it's wrong as as overall being true And so for me, these debates are not entirely all that different from the interviews in the sense that the primacy of the interview, the core atomic element of the call and the response, the basic essential features of the interview between that metaphor of sight interview and those properties of speech and orality of the call and the response like that is still i would say the place of these debates they simply come i would say with a degree of accountability or responsibility the ability to respond that's a bit heavier maybe and just a bit more demanding um on on both of our parts and, and by the way, this isn't just about the rebuttals and kind of scoring points or anything like that. For me, the biggest thing is to make sure that they're not, um, that I'm not a bad host. Hosting your own debates, I think, is risky business because it could just seem like a series of ambushes or a series of setups. And I, I definitely don't want that to be the case. So I found myself at this point, you know, they've all been recorded. And I'm not going to say too much individually about them because, again, f- for the reasons I'm expressing now, I I found myself in many cases uh, conflicted between, you know, probably those old debate instincts of, you know, refute, rebut, you know, counterexamples, all that kind of stuff. And on the other hand, saying, look, this is my show. This person is coming here out of their own free will. And if I mistreat them, if I treat them unfairly, if I even give the impression that they're being treated unfairly or poorly, I I lose. In other words, if I win the wrong way, I legitimately in a serious, non-trivial way, lose. That to me was the the really the heavier burden uh, that I felt, and I don't and I don't know. The, the the listener will have to decide what comes of that. But I see that as part and parcel of this thing that debate has contributed to, to my life, and that I think can contribute to everyone's life. In this sense of delexit mundum, of being able to take the light in the world, because I think the world is 
in, in many ways, our relations to the world and those relations include the people we find there and the sense that every person in the world is someone who we can find delectable, who we can take delight in, who we cannot just encounter and like, well, I, I love you, which means I'm going to correct you when you say the wrong things. And by correcting you, you will see the truth and that truth will set you free or no, but the ability to actually take delight and take pleasure in another person simply because Dilexit Mundum, because they're a person. You know, again, I realize that this is flirting on the other side with any number of underdetermined nations that could slide into a kind of fatalism or hopelessness or laziness or relativism and you know those are worthwhile things to avoid but only i would say in proportion to keeping that primacy of 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 this kind of delight in the world uh in place and I do think, by the way, that, that this Dilexit Mundum is a secular notion. In fact, I would even say that God in John 3.16, God's love of the world, is a kind of secularism. And the incarnation itself is certainly a kind of a kind of of secular theology. That's the meaning of taking flesh. And, and to me, that, that incarnational aspect, the fact that the five wounds of Christ on the cross, even after resurrection, remain on his body, and that those wounds are the sign of the stigmata on Francis and the sign of holiness of the saint. Like this whole very morbid <laughs> thing that my religion has and it's 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 choice of the vulgar tongue that's choice of the vernacular it's choice of the of the in some sense you could say you know roman catholicism you know it's acceptance of the so-called you know pagan uh context again this acceptance isn't uncomplicated this acceptance doesn't entail you know, anything and everything. But it's it's this sensibility, right, of love of the world and this particular way of delight and pleasure, this kind of secularism that for me is has become central to my growth as a person, a growth that I would say began in a very uh, anti-secular sense of religion and and relationship to art where art itself was even kind of choked by you know you couldn't even love maybe like and I'm, I'm being very I, I could talk about this very concretely I like to play long introductions on guitar I love quoting the whole chorus before you jump into the verse you know those things were often discouraged i found um just get to the you know to the front end of that first verse you know and 
you know, if you're playing across the liturgy, you know, don't bleed too much out of the the movements of the liturgical form for, you know, those kinds of things. Um, even within the context, I would say, of praise and worship, you know, don't don't perform, you know, don't don't stand out. It's like, OK. And maybe there's something about anointing and, and the aesthetic where being really, really good at singing or really, really good at playing or, you know, having a certain degree of virtuosity has a place there. And, you know, earlier on in my developmental, you know, upbringing, I would say I was in a very anti-secular religious and artistic environment and debate among other things for sure but but especially debate forced me out of that um in a number of ways intellectually just through my experiences um as an adolescent and it sent me on this journey where philosophy was again you know a huge thing but also literature and teachers like father conrad and 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 teachers like you know Dr. Spinnenweber and Dr. Crosby and Dr. White, you know, uh, colleagues, uh, students, fellow students, friends, you know, even the idea of friends is like having them. I, I still struggle with that because I move so much. So, you know, friends, friends were not something you could delexi, you know, in part for defensive reasons, because you're going to move and, you know, and you won't have them anymore. So why take delight in that way or to that degree? But, you know, going out of that and, and of course, marriage and, and that whole life. And, you know, it's it's an ongoing story. It's a developing story. It's not something I have figured out. And even in the context of this show, I would say that the motto Delexi Mundum is also in some sense the, the prayer, the desire, the hope. Um, I want this show to be a, I want this podcast to be a profoundly secular secula seculum, in secula seculorum um, thing. I want it to be a place where all are welcome and where all are called to this particular kind of love of the world that happens to take its inspiration from, you know, Roman Catholic Latin rendition of, of scripture, but I think has something to say that can break out and transcend that particular um, place philosophically at the very least. So, you know, the significance of debate in my life as opposed to or in distinction to music and religion is making a place for the secular and making even a religious place for the secular, but of all, making a place for love and not just a love that is conditional upon any number of religious or pious or moral or aesthetic or, or whatever you want to say here, political, you know, uh, set of conditions, but, a, but a kind of 
unconditional love, not the kind that you see and the kind of unconditional love of, I, I suppose, you know, universal obligation or something, but the, but the, the unconditional love of delight, of pleasure. I'll end with this image. It's, it's the last picture in, in my 2014 book, A Primer for Philosophy and Education. My, my, sis, my sister, Ana Maria, she, she drew the drawings and the, and the last drawing, I think there's nine of them. And the last one is, is a picture of my grandma and grandpa Rocha sitting together at the table at their little house in Far Texas, 714 East Hawk Street, a block away from St. Anne's Catholic Church. And we lived there with them for a while, and so I had a lot of opportunities to see them just sit. My grandma had arthritis, and so she had big knuckles, and she would, you know, she would she would kind of, you know, roll them on the tabletop and make a little pattern, a little rhythm. And, you know, yeah, tap her arthritic knuckles in a rhythm. And my grandpa would sit and read the Bible or, or the mail or whatever. And people would come by, my, my aunts and uncles, great aunts and great uncles, tios and tias, they'd stop in and say hi and sit down maybe, have some coffee. But so much of their relationship, they were married for 72 years, was a kind of delight they took in just sitting in two chairs at a table in a hot, unair-conditioned house and in, in the Rio Grande Valley. And and the delight they took in each other wasn't like they weren't gazing in each other's eyes. You know, half the time my grandma was, you know, saying, Andres, she would say with the hard S at the end when she was mad at him. And he would, you know, tease her. And um, they would argue, you know, sometimes. And tell jokes a lot, too. Um... There was a little while when we lived in, in the main house. They had a little casita, a little a smaller house off to the side that they were staying in. And I think my parents had gotten a like a baby monitor to just take. I, my grandpa just had a big surgery, and so I think it was just to make sure they were okay. And they were laying in their you know their two beds across from each other, telling jokes and laughing. And they they were so loud that my parents had to <laughs> turn off the turn off the baby monitor they were taking delight in each other in separate beds feeble bodies but they they, they yeah they, they loved each other and I think that that kind of love is an important thing for me because oftentimes amor mundi for me means or can mean or can default into meaning some more rigorous or maybe more dramatic or more erotic or more romantic or more demanding you know love conquers all or or you know tragic you know 
yeah, I, I still get get down with tragedy. But I think Delexi Mundo, and I think what debate is really about is taking delight in the conversation and in the person's company and um, and kind of playing around and and enjoying yourself. Um, I enjoyed debate when I was young because I won a lot and because I could beat people and because I could take out any number of issues and problems and resentments and, and all those kinds of things on on people but I wasn't treating them like people I was objectifying my opponents and uh, yeah those were poorly motivated debates I was young I, I didn't know many things I still don't know many things but I do know today that the significance of debate isn't about learning how to argue well or any of those things. And by the way, most of the things I've learned from the debate, I've deduced in retrospect, but almost none of them that I learn at the time in the way that I tell them today, even whenever I teach and whenever I present, you know, rhetorical and logical foundations of argumentation and speech and rhetoric. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not to say it's not important, but or, or it's wrong or anything, but it's just simply not, uh, it's certainly not the way it happened for me biographically. And so debate for me today and across my life and in this somewhat tense relationship to some of the other great loves of my life, like music and guitar and religion and, and Catholicism and my faith, certainly other things too you know my family both being a husband and a father and a son and a brother cousin friend you know all those things you know d d debate uh even being myself you know um debate opened a, a portal that was certainly probably already opening, but it opened it far and wide enough for me to really get into this kind of secular space. And then I was able to continue widening that scope even so wide that it no longer became an exit space, but it become a kind of an everything space to the point at which I think I'm, I'm I hope, I'm getting close to, to being in the world and to being worldly and to being secular and, and even to, to being modern, a person of the saculum, of the age. Um, all these things that, that uh, for so many years and for so many complicated reasons and for so much peer pressure I ran away from, I find myself accepting more of it. And there's definitely, as I've said, there's risks and um, overcorrections to be certain and, and all kinds of things to avoid there. And, and I hope that I'm able to, to not fall into that. But I do know that what matters about both debate in my life and debate 
in this podcast and just that very agonistic ritual of testing one's wits and ideas and whatnot against another human being, another person. That what really matters there, I think, is that it becomes an opportunity to deepen one's bonds, to deepen one's delight and pleasure, and not to break and and not to sever. And, you know, I... I understand reasons why people may have ethical and moral objections to that. But I, I'm willing to defend this this desire, this aspiration uh, against that scrutiny, at least for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 1. I would like to again thank my sponsors, Whip and Stock Publishers, Give Us This Day, Solidarity Hall, Revelation Cable Company, Black Catholic Messenger, Where Peter Is, The Juan Diego Network, and Commonweal Magazine. And thanks once again to our featured sponsor, the Institute for Christian Socialism. Be sure to check out all their links, and in particular, as I said at the beginning, take a look at the Institute of Christian Socialism's magazine, The Bias. The friends of the show are The Commonweal Podcast, The Gloria Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Gosli, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Kush Classics. Be sure to check the show notes, of course, for all the links to our friends, to our sponsors, including our featured sponsors, Magazine The Bias, and one of my own autobiographical essays published there. You can also find a tip jar, and we thank you for your support for Folk Phenomenology. Please share this episode and subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and be sure to follow us on social media, all of your shares, all of the volume signal boosting, uh, all those metaphors of raising the level of sound and of noise, they really do truly amplify this show and help it to continue. Next week, we will have our first debate on Folk Phenomenology Season 1. I'll be debating David L. Gray on critical race theory. Uh, the debate itself was originally recorded on April 20th, 2021, and in that debate, uh, David Gray, who is a, um, a very strong critic of critical race theory, he and I uh, talk a bit about some of his critiques uh, that he's been very public with, and we reach, I believe, some points of clarification, and I believe we also uh, have some major points of difference, but nonetheless, we have the conversation together, uh, and that precedes an episode to follow that, which is another monologue episode on critical race theory and Catholic social teaching. The second debate was supposed to be aired on October 26th, However, due to uh, some unfortunate circumstances, that debate was not able to be aired, but instead I'm going to be airing the unreleased audio 
of the the gift of blackness to the church interview published in Church Life Journal uh, last summer, or I suppose two summers ago now since we're in the fall. Um, that audio will be released on October 26th. And on October 27th, if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I'll be giving a talk on critical race theory and Catholic social teaching at the University of Dallas at 7 p.m. there. So there's going to be a a lot of work on critical race theory over the next few weeks. I know it's popular, but I do hope I'm able to give it a, not just a popularized overview, but a... Uh, an overview that perhaps offers something a bit different. On November 2nd, the second debate of this inaugural season of Folk Phenomenology will be released with uh, Trent Horn, who I debated on socialism uh, a while ago, almost uh, well over a year now, Uh, but this time we'll be talking about capitalism. So in next week's uh, episode with uh, David Gray, I hope you're able to see a bit of what I talked about today about debate, including some of the changes I've made uh, to my approach. And really, you shouldn't expect anything formal. It's going to be a long-form discussion. Uh, We're going to take our time, and we're going to go as far as we can go within the time that we do have. And so I invite you all to uh, check that out next week and, and see what you think. Folk Phenomenology is written, hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Sam Rocha. To find out more about me and my work, you can go to samrocha.com. Well, it's time to go out and love the world. Dilexit Mundum. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is. But it's the most interesting, out of the word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. Through the eyes of our ears, we see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.